0: navigate stuff when i was in seventh grade i uh i got a present from my father it wasn't my birthday it wasn't really uh oh hey what's up should i hold it just pretend i'm not here okay you're not making this awkward at all I, yeah thank you okay yep oh yeah seventh oh there we go thank you Seventh grade. So it wasn't my birthday or anything. I come home to this wonderful present, and I have it tonight. I've dragged it along with me. Lo, these many years. The collapse of evolution. I don't know if you know much about 7th graders, but they don't like video games or Nerf guns. They like books about... I did actually read it. I was a strange 7th grader, so I did read it, and I do remember quite a bit of it. But what was happening to me at that time was I had started science class, and science was now talking about evolution. And my dad wanted to make sure that I had a biblical worldview, an idea of the world that did not include evolution. And so this was one of the, um, the many gifts... Of the kind that I that I got, I have a seventh grader now, and one of these days I'm going to wrap it up and give it to her. And just <laughs> here you go, baby. What um, what 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 was a fe- a feature of my own upbringing, and and especially within a, a conservative religious um, uh, group like I was, uh, was uh, the culture war around evolution. That was kind of a a central feature of of what we were fighting against. In fact, I remember this video that they had us watch in youth group at one time, and it was like these two castles, and on one was like scientists, and the other was like Christians, and they're shooting at each other to like knock down their towers, like one's Christianity and one's science. And science is aiming at our foundation. It's shooting at the base because the base of our faith starts with Genesis 1 and God creating the world. And if you open Genesis 1 and you read the first few verses, it says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, and God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good and he separated the light from the darkness and he called the light day and he called the darkness night and there was evening and there was morning the first day. And so and so we were taught like that is that's the foundation of everything. It starts right there. If you want to know how God did things, it starts there. It's not that, you know, six billion years back and blah, 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 humans, right? That's, that's, that's not how it is. And in fact, one of the things that was tied to how good a Christian we were, our faithfulness to God, was how fiercely we held on to Genesis 1, read, quote, unquote, literally, and how much we were willing to fight against the forces that wanted to corrupt our youthful minds. And so that was a big feature. And Tonight I want to talk a little bit about Genesis 1, but I also want to talk a little bit about How we have assumptions around what the Bible is doing around what the Bible is about When you when you come to a church like this somebody like me stands up and we just start Bibling we just start saying well This is what it says and this is what it means and this is what you should do about it and and we just start talking about that but you rarely ask the questions, is that what it means? Is that what it meant 2,000, 3,000, 4,000, you want to get conservative about it, years ago when it was written in a Jewish mind in Palestine? Is that? Those questions we are rarely willing to face because they shake our foundations. And so uh, tonight, the wonderful thing about um, Edison Chapel is we are willing to kind of step into that space. And so I don't ask that you agree with me. I, don't, I ask that you, you walk with me for a little bit. And we think about Genesis 1. We think about our presuppositions around it. So if I go back to the... My upbringing and my childhood and all the things that were kind of around that, what were the assumptions that were alive with us then? Well, the major assumption was that the Bible is at least in some parts scientific, that it was written for the purpose of describing to us how something happened. That is, when you open Genesis, you are getting a historical description. How did God do it? God said, let there be light and there was light. And that's the That's what happened Um, that the Bible has a a record in it. And they're trying to get like, if you picked up a book, MLK days coming up, um, I think Monday, actually, if you picked up a biography on Martin Luther King, you would you would you would read about he went here and he spoke about this. And the, the facts of the issue, the facts of his life in detail and in chronological order are paramount to the way that we write and read. The fact of the matter is that is a modern invention, and that is not how they wrote in the ancient world, and that is not how they thought in the ancient world. The second uh, assumption that I had growing up with that belief was that, that how you read and how you answer the question of, for instance, in this issue, evolution, directly impacts how faithful you are to God. Like the two are hand in hand. What you believe about this and what God, you know, th- those, those two things belong together. Uh, tonight, I'm going to challenge those two assumptions. So what is going on in Genesis? Did you know it is anything interesting about those verses that I read? Something sort of should stand out kind of glaring. What, the first day we've got light and we have dark, but what don't we have? Well, we don't have people, that is true. Not what I'm going for, but yeah. You have light and dark, but what don't you have? Light. A source. There is no source for light. Whence does that light come from? I've heard theologically it's Jesus, or you know, or it's God or something like that, but that's not what your text says. Your text says that God made light, he separated it from darkness. There was evening, there was morning, there's the first day there's no sun there's no stars there's no moon in fact the only thing there is is god water light and dark i got a witness back there <laughs> does that make any sense to you I, we have to start with the presupposition as well and i, I think i share that i hope you have this i have this our ancient ancestors were not idiots like they could see that, you know, in order to have light, you had to have a lamp. In order to have light, in fact, when the sun went down, it was a very dangerous time. It's a very scary time. When the sun comes up, if you have no source of light, we, we're in pitch black, and you're, you're so excited to have that sun come up, right? So they understand, the author of this text understands that you can't have light without a light source. So why does the author write these words? Why, what's happening? Here, I want to talk about that, and I want to give you my take on it. Whether you, you agree with it or not, you kind of do what you want. But I want to say this before I dive into what I think is happening. I took a class in seminary, my master's degree, called Genesis 1 through the Ages. And it was about that exciting. <laughs> what we did was we read the writings. We started, I, I just remember starting with Augustine. We might have gone earlier, but I remember. We started with Augustine, we read all of the major thinkers and what they had to say about Genesis 1. And let me tell you what, for 2,000 years, Christians have not agreed on this topic. I know that you may have heard or thought or been raised to think that they all thought the same thing. Well, spend five minutes in church history and you will understand that Christians have never agreed about anything. It's just the same as it is today. So this is, this is my take on what's happening. I do have scholarly sources and reasons I think that. But, but I don't want you to feel attacked tonight. I don't want you to feel like I am shooting at the foundations of anything. In fact, I think if anything, we should have a moment of easy breath. Because if for 2,000 years the greatest minds of Christianity have not been able to answer this question, we have a little bit of leeway here tonight don't we? We have a little bit of leeway here tonight. So, day one. Let's have some intellectual humility, but let's have some fun, because this is a really fun text. I wish we could read it in Hebrew. If you read it in Hebrew... the way that the words, you know, how we have in English and sometimes, you know, your words will end to kind of create a rhyme structure. Genesis 1 is actually set up in a kind of ancient rhyme structure. We don't, we don't hear it in English, but if you kind of look at it in Hebrew, you'll see that rhyme structure at work. This is a poetic statement. It sounds poetic. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It was formless and void, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. What a beautiful What a beautiful depiction. All right, what happens next? Let's look at uh, day two in um, verse six. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. Now, remember what, what has existed up to this point? God Hanging over the waters. And in fact, the word there, hovering, is a word in Hebrew. It's only used like two or three times in the Old Testament. It's a very strange word. And it means to kind of like hover, kind of like a bird or a dove or a hummingbird. Hover over one spot. So God is hovering over some sort of watery mass. And the second day, God says, Let there be an expanse, something in the midst of the water, and let it separate. So we separate water from water. And God made the expanse, separated the waters... And it was so, he called the expanse heaven, there was evening and there was morning, the second day. Now, I want to hang on to that for a second, because something very controversial has been said here tonight. I've said that there are two things that the text begins with, God and water. And yet I was taught, in fact, most Christian theology begins with this this belief, that God created ex nihilo. Have you ever heard that phrase? ex nihilo it means out of nothing means that there was nothing that there was god and there was sort of nothing and then god made everything but this text has what two features at the very beginning two characters god and water Right? It doesn't say God created Now, Now, what is at work is, we don't even realize this, this actually comes out of Greek philosophy from Augustine and things like that, but it's made its way into what it means to be a Christian. If you don't believe God created ex nihilo, you're not a real Christian. right? That, that, that's, a, that's a feature of the way that people talk, especially in evangelical and conservative cultures. And yet, right here, it says that God didn't create an ex nihilo. He started manipulating water. So, This hides, I think, a a third sneaky um, assumption, and that assumption is this, that all of the texts of the Bible should agree with one another. That you should be able to begin at the start and draw a line all the way across and it just sort of says the same thing all the way through to Jesus all the way to the end of time. Like it's just this one straight line and that there aren't these different conversations that are happening where we're talking about this and we're talking about that. In Genesis, there are two creation stories. That is brute fact. Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. These are different. They cannot be merged. They do not work together. One has a God of transcendence who makes everything from, from this watery mass. One has a God that is walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Right? They're talking about some very different things that are happening. So anyway, there's a sneaky assumption that we have been given, and many of us have been given, that, that the Bible isn't a bunch of people who are, who are speaking together about this great mystery of this God who has stepped into the world and made himself known, we as Christians would say, through Jesus, right? And all of that, but we won't go too far because we're still in Genesis one and I don't wanna get too far. But let me say this, that the Bible has a lot of texture, has a lot of conversation. You have Joe, I'm gonna get too far. From you. It has, I challenge that assumption. It doesn't need to be that way. All right, it all starts with water. And this is why I think it starts with water because the greatest enemy At the time that these books were put together, their greatest enemy was Babylon. And Babylon had its own Genesis story, its own origin story. And its origin story begins like this. There is a great teeming mass of water. In fact, you could think of this teeming mass of water as a great dragon with many heads called Tiamat. And Tiamat is the goddess, you know, who gives birth to all of the other gods. And eventually, in in the ancient Near Eastern world, the gods are always fighting with each other. And usually the head god is trying to kill all all of the smaller gods. And so there's a war in heaven between this Tiamat, this many-headed dragon, and this one hero who steps up, the god of Babylon, whose name was Marduk. And Marduk, with his mighty bow, shot Tiamat and killed her. Then he takes his mother's body and he tears her in half. And he rips her in half and he creates the the sky above, the waters above, and the waters below. Does that sound familiar? Doesn't it sound very similar to what you just heard, that God is hovering over the waters? It's sort of similar, but it's very different, isn't it? He's hovering over the waters, and he steps into the midst, and he separates them, and and boom, you've got this. But the the Babylonian myth is that the gods killed the watery mass and tore her asunder and made her into the world. And then humans come after that, and we, we won't get into that. So for, um, for the ancient people around Israel, so if you think of Israel as like right here, you have the Mediterranean Sea, right? you have Egypt, you have Assyria, you have Babylon, Israel sitting right here, you have Ammon, Moab, and Edom. And all of these nations, and before that, of course, you have the Akkadians and the Assyrians and all those other people, and all of these people have the same kind of myth. Starts with water, starts with the war of the gods, and it starts with the making of the world with the body of the water. Let's keep moving. The third day, God has, makes land. I won't read it because we're, we're running shy on time. Four, and the fourth day, God, in verse 11, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, fruit-bearing trees, and their seed, each according to their kind on the earth, and it was so. Uh, the earth brought forth vegetation, plants. So, so God speaks, and plants begin to grow. What's the problem with this? What haven't we had created yet? The sun. There's still no sun, right? There's still no sun in the sky. Where's this light coming from? How are these plants existing? What has happened? There's no sun. Where's the sun? Where are the stars? Where are the moon? That happens on day five. So we wait for day five in verse 14 God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. Let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. And let the. the, and the uh, can I talk? And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. All right. So what, are the, what is the sun, the moon, and the stars for? Time, right? They help us keep time. What an odd thing to make the sun, the moon, and the stars for. Not for light, which is how we know it, right? I mean, that's how we experience it. Not for light, but for timekeeping. That's a strange thing to say. So in verse 16, and God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, the lesser night light to rule the night, and the stars. It's an afterthought. Do you know uh, what the ancient people worshipped as gods? Do you hear about Ra, the sun god? You ever heard of the Ra, the sun god from Egypt? Do you know constellations? Anybody know Orion? And say, what's who's Orion? Do you know? An ancient Greek god, right? The gods were the stars, or they were behind the stars, or they were represented by the stars. But in the ancient mind, as Israel is sitting there, and all the other nations around them describe how the world began. They describe the world in violence and in chaos. They describe gods that are capricious. It describes a violent beginning. And then it turns its eye towards what gods are now, and they look at the stars in the sky. And they say, "Oh, the sun—that's a god," or "Oh, the stars." Plato, right, very famously, talked about the god living, and the gods living beyond the stars, which is where our souls go when we got we die. That's also a Greek invention, right? We go to the stars. That's that's a piece of that. And so, what is the author here saying? The author here is contradicting every other myth around them, saying that no. The stars make nothing, the sun makes nothing, the moon makes nothing. They're objects that were set there by the one true and living God, who doesn't use violence and chaos and war. It's not this this maniac fight and bodies ripped in half. It is God who hovers over the face of the deep and speaks life. Who says be in this peaceful act There's this scene in a book from C.S. Lewis where the Christ character is sort of walking through a dead world and singing. And as the lion sings, things begin to sprout. It's this beautiful depiction. This is radically different than what their neighbors were saying God is like. They are saying something about God here that challenges the presuppositions of their day. And what happens next? God makes God makes the sun, the moon, the stars. Then God makes animals. Do you know what the gods, the idols of the ancient world looked like? When they came out of Egypt and they needed to make a new god, what did they make? A golden calf. Because the ancient Near Eastern people worshipped calves. The god of the Philistines was Dagon. He was half fish and half man. They worshipped things. What is this text saying? This is saying the fish, the beasts of the sea, these are inventions. These are creations from a creative god a god who steps into time and and makes peacefully beautifully of his own volition and will and then we come to this moment where he makes humans and it is a complete vision and then we move into this garden sequence right where humans are tending the world that god has made in communion with god what a what a different kind of story what a different kind of 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 God, we are engaged with here. And so, what is happening, I think, in this text is a direct subversion of the word of their day, which is the gods are violent, you were made to serve them, the gods are capricious, they don't care about you, that this world was made in blood and in water and in war, and it will continue that way. Genesis begins by saying, no, there is one transcendent and beautiful deity who stands over everything and says, be, and invites it to be, makes it. So my assumptions, if you haven't already caught on, are that the ancient people were affected by the world around them, that they had real-life engagement with their neighbors who believed different things than them, much like you do when you walk around and and, and, and meet people. And that they wanted to say something. The second thing is that they wanted to say something to to their their people and their children and their families and their congregations, as we might put it um, anachronistically. Uh, And they also wanted to say something to the people who were around them. And you can see if we look at this, the way in which they take the world as it was assumed to be and they flip it on its head. And they put at its head the one true living God. And they say, stop worshiping plants and trees and suns and moons and stars and, and, and worship the one true living God who invites us to become as creative as him, who gives us, in this last few verses there, the imago Dei, plants within us the image of God so that when you look around out there, it should be green and gorgeous and alive because God made it that way. And when you see other humans, you see the face of God, the imago Dei, and they are valuable innately, innately invaluable and must be preserved and cherished. That's what's being said in this text, and that is not what was being said in the ancient world. And honestly, it's not really being what's being said by the church or the world today. That that out there is to be protected, and every face you see is the face of God, and that also must be protected. And if I see anything in Genesis 1, thinking back to the Evolution, and and, and so that still is a a culture war that some people are fighting to this day. I would say this there's a very easy way to take Genesis 1 and make it apply to that evolutionary story, and that is to say this that if you meet somebody who says it came a boom, and there we are, you say yes, and at the center of that is a God. Who directs? A God who provides. A God who separates water from water, and who knows how it works next. But that God has made this, and has made this, and has made that, and it is very good. It's very good. And if we could just capture maybe a bit of that piece of Genesis, where we could look at the world and say it's so good, shouldn't we love and preserve it and protect it, and look at each other and say, "You're so good." Shouldn't we love and preserve and protect, especially the least of these? That's what I see in Genesis. Not a culture war to be fought, but a creative invitation to see the world poetically, beautifully set up by this God. And that's the end of that. (laughs) So Rod's up.
1: You guys never clap for me. (laughs) Just kidding. (laughs) That's funny. I I always say that. (laughs) I get the claps out of sympathy. (laughs) Jordan gets the claps because he's legit. Again, I'm taking very seriously how we approach the Bible this year, it is my New Year's resolution for chapel. I do not have all the answers, I do not know everything, but I know some very smart people who have studied it and will be sharing with you, Jordan being one of them, and I'm so thankful that he chooses to spend his time with us and and share those things. Please spend some time with each other because a message like that demands (laughs) that we look into each other's eyes and call each other good. When everything else is saying, maybe you deserve to be ripped apart too, something, a word like that calls us to respond to each other in a way that that kind of God would as well. And that, my friends, is an origin story. Jesus, thank you that we could come here on this Thursday night. Thank you for Drew and his gifts. Thank you for Jordan and his gifts. Thank you for this community and how you are doing good things through us. Thank you that we get to be part of things that people don't understand, but as we seek to fight for your justice, the city does rejoice. And thank you that you give us that promise in Isaiah. So please go with us, give us peace, bring healing to our bodies, And let us, more than anything, see each other as good. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Go in peace.